0: On today's episode, a Pro Runner Spotlight with Ultrarunner, Patrick Regan. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me under trained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. (laughs) haven't done one of these for a while we have a pro runner spotlight this time my um guest is an ultra marathoner the first ultra guest i've had on in this pro runner spotlight um theme and we have patrick regan and he is um sponsored by goo energy labs and has raced 50 miles 100 k's 100 miles um we'll talk about his races in a second but he's done like 100 miles in like 12 hours, uh, 12 hours, 20, hundred K in six hours, 33. And this is just what it says on his website. He is a coach. He's a running coach and you can check out his website. It'll be linked in the show notes. And he's also a podcast host. He hosts the ultra wizard Ramble podcast. And, uh, he talks a little bit about that at the end of this interview, but specifically I want to have him on to talk about the differences between, you know, transitioning from a marathon to an ultra what that kind of looks like and what he does in particular to reduce risks of injuries, what he does strength-wise, what he does when it comes to his typical training week. We break that all down. And wait till you hear it, his tips on transitioning from marathon to ultramarathon. He says there's a pretty common misconception, which his answer actually surprised me. So looking forward to delivering this. Uh, we also talk about fuel, fueling strategies, how to, um, what, what sort of, what you need for taking in calories when it comes to these longer runs, you're going to love it. I think even if you're not interested in ultras and you're interested in marathons and just overall performance, you're going to love this interview. And so, yeah, let's take it away. Go check out his podcast. If you're interested in coaching, you can also check out his uh, website and I'll link that into the show notes. Let's get this underway. Oh, before I do, (laughs) um, I'll have to also apologize because my um, Riverside, which I used to record these podcasts, was actually picking up the wrong microphone on my behalf. So I sound terrible. So luckily, you're not listening to these interviews to hear me, you're here to listen to Patrick and his insights, but it does sound quite awful on my behalf. So apologies for that. With that out of the way, let's get on with the interview. Thanks very much for coming to the podcast and helping me, Patrick.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brody. It's uh, really nice to be on. We've been going back and forth for a while. So it's yeah. great to finally see each other face to face.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Um, I'm always curious about how people get into ultras and um, everyone has a usual journey of like, you know, starting off smaller distances and then just eventually expanding out and gravitating more towards the, what they love. Um, how did your journey go about? Like, how did that develop?
1: Yeah. Like most youngsters in sport, right. I found track and field and cross country. Uh, but I had, a. a long-term interest in skateboarding and punk rock growing up Um, so those were kind of the two paths that I was on I wasn't really sure if I wanted to to really focus on skateboarding or running and I came to this crossroads and I decided on running because I was seeing a lot of success uh, at it when I was young and just having so much fun with it you know this empowerment of well I only have myself to rely on it's (laughs) not a team sports thing anymore Um, to me it felt a lot like skateboarding you know I took that to university level. Um, I I have I had a relatively successful career uh, running cross country and track and field in the NCAA. I ran Division II in Pennsylvania at a school called Slippery Rock University, PA. And then I just you know I I took a little break like a lot of runners do, Uh, but I found myself you know coming back to it um, three or four years later when I moved to the South in Savannah. And uh, when I found running again, it was, it was like wildfire, man, you know, <laughs> just like the first time I'd got into it. Um, I, I was fortunate to get a collegiate coaching job down here in the southeast uh, where I was an assistant for a while and I led a program for eight years. And during that time, I was recruiting athletes from all over the world uh, and I was finding myself getting back into pretty good shape. Um, there were three or four guys on my team that could run about 30, 40 to 31 minutes or 10 K. So they were fun to train with. Uh, it was really fun to push, you know, my ladies team when I was re- coaching collegiately and surely, but slowly, I uh, found myself racing the marathon, the half marathon, and that, that was really fun. Nothing had really quite clicked for me yet in terms of this burning desire to keep doing it. Uh, and that, that's kind of what led to ultras <laughs> for me. So,
0: Excellent. Was it the uh, teaching career sort of stuff that reignited getting back into running after having that break?
1: Yeah, for sure. I had this cool opportunity when I came to Savannah. About a year after I got here, I was working a few different jobs. I was doing school taxi transport, so I was doing pedicab um, to to stay in shape, and it was super fun. But I met the head cross-country and track and field coach at a university here, and I got telling him a little bit about my running collegiately, and he said, well, would you want to come you know, train with my athletes a few days a week and, you know, get back into running and coaching potentially. And, and I thought, why not take a shot? Uh, so that was, that was, you know, it took me a while to get back in, say, 26-minute 8K shape, then 25-minute 8K shape. But before I knew it, I had the bug again.
0: Yeah, cool. And you said you did the natural sort of half marathons, marathons, and didn't really um, have a huge burning desire for it. Because uh, I just know a lot of people's running careers, if they 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 sometimes get up to the marathon. They love the marathon. Then they want to improve on the marathon. Then they want to do more marathons. You know, bigger marathons, and they they sort of stick there. Whereas others tend to to go further. Um, What was why would it be such a burning desire to start running further? What was it for you?
1: Yeah, I'd done a a couple half marathons. I did one in about one hundred and six in Orlando, um, Florida. And I felt like, wow, that was a really great performance. I was super excited about it. It was on my birthday. It was my debut half marathon, maybe 2013. Um, 2014, I did a few like road 10Ks and halves, but I was really focused on my coaching at that point. Um, And in 2015, I decided I'd, I'd line up for a marathon. I ran 220 in Albany, Georgia for my first one. And during the course of that year, I started running further and further. I was running a lot in the evenings. I mean, sometimes starting runs at eight or 9 PM and just going till I I didn't feel like going anymore, 30 or 35 miles, um, (laughs) going up in the mountains, um, that summer and training with some friends in Asheville, North Carolina and beautiful high Alpine regions, you know, up to eight hours of running, climbing a lot, you know, experiencing trails a little. And that was when things started to click a little bit for me that I really enjoyed running for four plus hours. Um, I did take a little bit of a tangential turn. My, my friend down in Florida has a race series and he was putting on a last chance Olympic trials qualifier for us athletes. So in January of 2016, I ran one Oh four, 28 and a half. And I qualified for the Olympic trials and got to run in LA, uh, here in the States. So that was a super cool experience. Um, but I told him before the race, like, oh man, I can't, I can't break one Oh five. And, uh, I've got a bunch of ultras scheduled for this season. I was signed up for my first 50 miler, et cetera. But you know, once you, once you qualify for trials, how are you going to turn it down? And I, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was, it was a really cool experience, you know, running with the best runners in the United States, you know, it was a year where I think Galen Rupp won. Mepka was second. Um, Darren Ritzenhein was third. So it was, it was wild, you know, experiencing, um, running against you know, individuals that in high school, I saw them on, you know, the sports magazines, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so it was quite interesting, man.
0: Excellent. Wow. And so, um, what's it look like now? What, what's your ultra journey sort of developed into?
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting last three or four years in terms of the trajectory of, um, my running changing a little bit, you know, I'm I'm a little bit less performance oriented now and a little bit more coaching focused. But 2016 was kind of the beginning for me where I got to run at the U S national championships in the hundred K I qualified for the world championships. Um, I, I, I got third that year at the world championships and that was where my career began to blossom and really take off that led to, you know, uh, professional contracts with Hoka. Uh, who I ran for for seven years. This is my first year not running for Hoka, um, so it you know it's really it's really been a, such a cool ride to get to this point. And along the way, like a lot of professional runners, you know I've I've built over time uh, coaching clientele. So so that's really my focus now you know, is is coaching athletes. Yeah.
0: Any highlights? Any races in particular or performances in particular that you that's you know you you really remember as some of the high moments.
1: Yeah, I'd say, you know, that, that world championship was really special. My, my father was at the 5k mark, um, my partner, you know, Adrian, my, my wife now, um, she was at the, the 10 K mark, every loop, you know, the formats 10 by 10 K and I gradually worked my way through the field. I was 27th at halfway and I ended up on the podium. So it was a really special day, right. Um, to have, you know, two of the best friends I've ever had, you know, there supporting me in that way and crewing, um, that heavily in hundred has been a really important race to me you know, I've got to win it I've won it three times in 2017 18 and 19 It's a beautiful 100 mile race in the Sonoran desert here in the US um, so that's a that's a really special experience for me winning that event three years in a row uh, that led to you know qualifying for the western states so I placed eighth at western states in 2019 that was a really cool experience to get top 10 at the event um, and in the same year, 2019, I, I won my first national championship uh, and my only so far. <laughs> cool. Uh, so I won the 100 mile trail national championships, and that that was my PB so far in the 100 mile distance. Uh, just a perfect course for me. I mean, it was something like 250 meters of elevation gain, very flat over 100 miles. Wow. Uh, not much at all. I mean, as pancake flat as you can get. So right up my alley. You know, nice and flat
0: i was going to say like do you have any particular um race conditions terrain weather anything that you maybe find that you excel at compared to the rest of the field um and w- what you maybe gravitate towards with the the pancake flat thing suit you better
1: yeah training where i train uh, brody you know right out my door if i run around 160 kilometers a week or 100 miles a week I- i'm probably only climbing Three or four hundred meters, so it's super flat here. Mm. So, given that that's the kind of terrain I, um, I run on uh, the non-technical, you know, road or non-technical trail. <laughs> those are those are my strong suits, especially really hot conditions as well. I mean, the conditions in Savannah, Georgia, are probably most similar to Singapore or somewhere extremely hot with very high humidity. So, I definitely gravitate towards hot weather races as well. Yeah. So really flat, okay. really hot. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what I thrive in. Wow.
0: Well, we're going to talk about fueling and that sort of stuff later on. I'll mm. be curious to hear that. Um, but as there, I know some people hear like, you know, you're running 100 mile weeks and that sort of stuff and people are like, well, how, how is he doing that without really breaking down that sort of stuff? Have you had any major injuries or any setbacks or, you know, stuff that's kept you from, from training and performing?
1: Yeah, much like most runners along the way, we all have something, right? Whether it's soft tissue or joint related or maybe the muscle origin, you know, a lot of problems in ultra running start, uh, I would say, uh, around the hamstring origin or, you know, chronic IT issues, um, chronic hip issues, hip flexor issues. Some of mine have been in, in that region where I've had weakness in like the origin of my right hamstring. Uh, that fortunately didn't lead to any tearing, (laughs) you know, anything of that nature. But I did have in 2018 when I was doing some of my highest volume running ever coming off my 2017 season, some really bad osteitis pubis that almost led to, uh, my, um, rectus abdominis becoming disconnected from the pubic bone. So that was probably the most serious injury I've had. Um, everything else pretty, uh pretty minuscule in comparison, you know, like a lot of runners, I've always struggled with, with ferritin levels. Ferritin levels have been a little tricky for me. Vitamin D, uh, you know, I work a lot in an office, (laughs) you know, doing my coaching services and that. So I I probably don't get as much sunlight as I should. Um, so yeah, man, I mean, like a lot of runners, you know, just those, those same issues, the osteitis pubis was probably the most, um, painful issue that I had in my entire running career though almost like uh you know yeah your rectus abdominis pulling off the pubic bone it's not a pleasant feeling you have no. a lot of bone edema there right yeah when you have an issue like that
0: yeah uh, for those who aren't familiar that's just like the muscle of your quad um, if um you're not familiar with rectus femoris or that sort of stuff um there's was there much time off needed for that was there much like um setbacks or was you know what was the the rehab like what what Led you to, to get back to symptom free?
1: Yeah, so given that my abdominal muscles, you know, they were compromised there, uh, that that rectus abdominis area, um, very low, very high pubic bone area. Um, I was doing a lot more cycling, so I, I was really resting the hip flexors a lot. In terms of, um, I wasn't putting myself in a, in a compromised like weight bearing position very often. Um, so I felt I felt as though being hunched over on, you know, a, a trainer was a lot more comfortable than going out on the roads and saying, oh, am, I, am I, continuing to damage this region? It was almost like every step I took when running was, was quite painful. Um, I took a lot of time off of core work. I almost had to in that region. I couldn't really do anything dynamic, although I could do some isometric work with, with planks. I really focused on, um, you know, a lot of side plank work, I stepped completely away from any sort of gym work like lunges and um, squats. I mean, it just felt like it really was setting me back every time I engaged in any sort of uh, lower body work that was weighted, man. So yeah. I, I stepped, I stepped away for maybe four or five months of doing anything running related. It, it was a tough year
0: must be tough like i'm glad to put me up on that as well because you said rectus abdominis and i for some reason heard rectus femoris but um yeah so not the quad but the abdominal muscles um, both
1: would be problems at the pubic bone right? <laughs> yes, i mean yeah. they, they both could be for sure yeah
0: for some reason that's what i heard in my mind but um i guess like it seems quite unusual as like an area for to, to get injured um especially if it's originating higher up like the superior part of Um, that bone but uh, yeah I'm guessing like a lot of strength work was probably required Um, and I'm guessing it's quite frustrating to take several months off when you know ultra runners they want to run they want to you know accumulate high mileage they want to keep high mileage and that sort of stuff so I could imagine it'd be quite frustrating
1: yeah I definitely learned my lesson like that recovering from an ultra is is very different from recovering from any sort of road marathon in the way that I feel this like deep, intrinsic tax. (laughs) My endocrine system feels extremely taxed when I run a hundred mile race. And I take, now I take 10 days completely off. I do almost nothing, just walking, you know, a lot of light mobility work, get a lot of body work and almost for the six months, six weeks after, um, I, I do really low intensity training. I may gradually increase the volume. But I'm not going to add any sort of vertical ascent or vertical descent. I think the mistake that I made coming off of my first win at Haveline 100 in 2017 there was I was expecting my body to recover in the way that it would from 100K and that I could get back into running on, uh, you know, running up and down mountains (laughs) in surrounding regions in the Southeast. And I wish I would have just taken all of December off because I had to withdraw from Western States in 2018 because of that injury. Uh, But I definitely learned my lesson. And since then my mileage has been so much lower, (laughs) you know, I, I think it, it kind of put a stamp on it for me and said, I, I at least decided why would I continue down this path of running really high volume if it would shorten my running career? Hmm. And I found that I can run less volume. I know this was one of your questions, so I hope we're not going ahead, (laughs) but, uh, I found that I can run a lot less volume and do well in ultras than I can in the marathon. I think the marathon almost requires running more volume at higher intensities than ultras. I'm confident lining up for a hundred mile race averaging between 75 and 80 miles a week. Whereas in a marathon, it's, I don't know, man, I I feel like there's the need for more.
0: What do you think is that? Is, is that because the intensity might be higher during the marathon? Like people are just trying to really flirt with the, that intensity boundary of what they can and can't tolerate and that put it's more taxing on the body. What, what would you put it down to?
1: Yeah, I think it's the need to get a lot of different types of quality work in as well, right? Like you have – maybe you have an interval day, right, and you want to get a couple of days of strides in, but you also want to get a nice long tempo in. And if you stack that up three weeks in a row and then maybe your fourth week, you take a little bit of downtime in terms of quality before, you know it, you're looking at four or five days of very specific work a week. Whereas in ultra running, I mean, some of my best ultras have come off the back of maybe only three or four quality set, what I would consider quality sessions, you know, flirting with that threshold area um, over the course of six or eight weeks approaching it. (laughs) I mean, I, I do I do very few workouts compared to when I was focusing on the half marathon, marathon distance. Mm. And now it's a lot more about time on feet and, you know, practicing nutrition protocol throughout training, you know, training in the type of conditions, both in terms of underfoot, but also in terms of weather, what you're going to race in. I think the specificity just shifts a lot and the high intensity for me becomes less important. And really, I mean, anything zone three or above, (laughs) you know, it's a lot of zone one and zone two training for me personally.
0: Break it down. Like talk me through the training week when you're not injured, when you really just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. They don't have a race sort of in the short term. What does a typical week look like? I know you mentioned the workouts and the low volume stuff, but can you maybe put it into practical or like, well, lay it out in terms of what it looks like?
1: Yeah. So training at um, a higher volume when I'm maybe. 16, 14 weeks, you know, 12 weeks out from a race, um, before I get really specific with, with quality sessions, Mondays are always really short and easy on a soft surface for me, nice and flat and like a grass field or a nice dirt loop, um, or some in, in Savannah, we have these, these awesome little trash alleyways we call them. that are just dirt lanes behind all the homes. So I, I run a lot through my neighborhoods on those. Um, I try to keep really slow zone one training on Mondays. And follow it with a little bit of weight vest strength training work so so i load up and i do you know about eight and a half kilos on my chest for various exercises you know starting a little bit of um, muscular endurance development um, i work a little bit with ankle weights in that routine as well uh, can you give some of-
0: specifics about like if you've got the weighted vest on what what sort of exercises the uh, sets of reps and that sort of stuff
1: yeah so i do like between 12 and 20 repetitions of step ups and step downs, you know, I'd say 10 to 12 repetitions per leg onto a 16 to 18 inch block, or maybe like the second stair in your home and back down. I do it on my second stair. So, you know, nice, nice step up, step down, kind of loading that quad, you know, encouraging the, the hamstrings and the, the glutes to activate, uh, side lunges are really nice. Um, air squats with about, 12 and a half, 13 kilos of weight loaded up, um, and then ankle weight routine, you know, focusing on activation in different planes in the hip region, nice and slow and relaxed for about 15 repetitions each You're focusing on the glute, uh, the abductors, the adductors, and then the hip flexor. So cool. just fun, just functionality stuff. I-, I really like the weight vest routine twice a week. I usually do that on Monday and Friday. Yeah. Um, So to build the rest of the week out, I usually do core work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday. So that's five days of strength a week. You know, I Mm. I do take strength quite seriously. Um, Four or five days a week. I also try to walk my dogs with a weight vest, nice and slow for for loading of the quads as well. Um, You know, sometimes it's only two, you know, if my partner's taking over the the duties in, in heavier training or when I'm busy with something else. Um, but yeah, the rest of the week, you know, it, it does look kind of similar to the way a marathon would structure it, where, you know, maybe Tuesday is a easy mid-range training day of 20 to 25 kilometers, uh, with some strides at the end, you know, 10 by 30 second strides at marathon, to half marathon intensity, uh, Wednesday, I would usually do some sort of, you know, progression run, uh, between 25 and 30 kilometers in length. Um, Thursday would be a nice, easy recovery day. Similar to Monday, uh, I run with a couple of my best friends on Thursdays and get coffee after we we just have a nice, like Thursday group run, coffee run. Uh, Friday's longer, you know, 30 to 35 kilometers, maybe a little bit of progression there as well. And we're talking off season, right? So we're not, you know, we're not getting into tempos and intervals, that sort of work. Saturday is really short. Sometimes just, just on a bike, like a gravel bicycle. Um, sometimes just a weight vest walk sometimes a nice, easy 10 K on a trail. And then Sunday, I mean, my long runs go up to 40 miles. So it it just depends on the sector of the season I'm in. You know, most of the time it's more like 20 to 25 miles, you know, 32 to, you know, 40 kilometers in that range.
0: Cool. And, um, those type of workouts that you do, do they fluctuate at all? Like, do you mainly keep to, to say your Tuesday sort of mid range stuff and your Wednesday sort of, you know, Shorter stuff, do they ever fluctuate for variety's sake or do you just have a particular workout that you like to follow?
1: Yeah, I do fluctuate quite a bit variety-wise. If I have a really long, intense session on Sunday, especially if unexpectedly, you know, a 30-mile run turned into a progression run and I started to touch some really high zone three work towards the end of the run, (laughs) you know, and I'm running almost 50 kilometers that day, Tuesday may turn into a double, where I just run, you know, 6k, 8k in the morning, and then another 10k or 12k at night. So I may push that, that stride work to Wednesday if I'm still really taxed from the long run. Um, Wednesday, it does fluctuate in terms of intensity. I mean, sometimes I'll warm up for five or six kilometers. I'll do something like uh, eight by two kilometers uh, with a two and a half minute jog at progressively faster intensity from say 50 kilometer pace to, to maybe even touching one at half marathon pace towards the end. Um, I, that day I may do 20 kilometers at my 50 K kind of, kind of pace, you know, uh, to, if I wanted a longer extended tempo, um, sometimes I do Ks. I mean, there's a lot of variety in, uh, in the type of training I can do. I like fart licks and kind of all over the place in terms of intensity. But each block has a different purpose, right? And uh, each cycle has a different purpose. So whether I'm prescribing for myself or prescribing for athletes, I try to have both variety and purpose with each training block.
0: I think that's a good balance because some people want that variety to, I guess, keep entertained and sort of keep the compliant with those sort of things because you want them to still be passionate when, in the training cycle, you don't want it to be this boring kind of slog and then just to get to the race. Um, But you also need some structure and some purpose to perform in that race as well. So I guess it's the balance of the two.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, training for the Western States Endurance Run or uh, an event similar to Hard Rock 100, uh, Ultra Trail Mount de Blanc is one that people talk a lot about, right? It's a world famous, you know, ultra marathon traveling through three countries training for races with lots of elevation gain for me requires a lot more treadmill time because i need not mileage accumulation necessarily but vert accumulation so if i shift from focusing on a flat hundred to focusing on finishing well in a race that has six thousand meters of vert climbing and almost seven or seven and a half thousand meters of descent I've really got to train the quads in a more significant manner, right? So I have to do a lot more power development work with that weight vest, um, or get more time in the gym. I also have to train to be able to hike and hike well and hike fast. So that's a whole other conversation, right? Like maybe, maybe I'm doing three. Anywhere between three and a half and five kilometer hikes per week on a 15% grade, right? And I need to wow. practice doing those hikes at about four to 4.2 miles per hour to hike with the best hikers in the world. Right. Mm. Um, so of the Western States hundred, when I, when I got top 10 there, I probably hiked 85% of the uphills. So I gave up a lot of ground on the uphills, but I made up, I made up for a lot of that loss with my leg speed, you know, I, I guess at least like my long-term pedigree in running flatter, faster races and running downhill on smooth train quite, quite well. I'm not going to claim to be a really fast downhill runner on technical terrain. You don't want to see me on technical terrain, (laughs) but, but the Western States hundred is, is perfect. Right. You know, nice smooth downhills for up to 17 miles at a time. Perfect for me. Yeah,
0: I want to get to some patron questions because Andrew asked about the strength routine and what you do to reduce injury risk and, Maximize performance at the same time. You did talk about the weighted vest workouts and the core workouts and those sort of stuff. If there's not anything else to add to that question, maybe you want to talk through the the core exercises that you do precisely.
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong in terms of what the industry would say. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're uh, you're in the physiotherapy world, right? And you probably prescribe a lot, Brody, in terms of. Uh, you know, the right type of strength training and how it's evolving, but I, I really believe in isometric work. So I focus a lot on plank work in both the central plane, um, facing the ground, right? Face to the ground, um, supine and prone. Um, and then also side planks, uh, you know, facing East and West as well. I probably do the lion's share of my core work uh, in the plank position, because I think it just makes me feel extremely strong in my obliques, um, extremely strong in my lower and upper abdominal muscles, and really strong in the low back. Now, in addition to those, I do quite a bit of work in terms of training the abductors and the adductors as well of the thigh um, and training the glutes. I really like the Superman exercise uh, on the floor. <laughs> um, I like like a fire hydrant uh, where I'm focusing on activation of the glute in one manner and then a donkey kick um, focusing on the activation of the glute, the glute in another manner. Those really make my hip functionality um, feel like it's in a really good place. And I, and I really believe strongly in bridges. So when I think about balancing all these exercises, I'm thinking about, Am I getting enough time with the low back? Am I getting as much time with the low back as I am lower abdominal muscles? Just the same that like you wouldn't do nothing but bicep curls. You want to do tricep extensions as well, right? <laughs> to balance yeah. the two muscle groups. Um, you don't want to just do work for your hamstrings. You want to do just as much for your quads. I'm trying to think about my core in that same way. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to do two minutes of work for my left oblique in plank position <laughs> and only one with the right. You're going <laughs> to develop imbalances over time. So my core strength training is quite simple, um, but with the addition of maybe a little five-pound ankle weight to get stronger over time or a two-and-a-half-pound ankle weight, you can enhance a lot of these exercises, especially like the donkey kicks. Um, you know, and, and when I say donkey kicks, I mean very controlled and slow, <laughs> not aggressive. Like everything I do with cores is really slow or isometric with no movement.
0: Yeah. It makes me think because a lot of the research that I come across focuses on heavy strength training like you know looking at three sets of six to eight reps and like a a little bit heavier but all that research is done on say half marathon marathoners improving their marathon and there's not a real lot of um, core research like for core strengthening exercises for runners but I I'd be curious to see like, the, because there's no real research done on ultra runners. I don't, I haven't come across any anyway. Um, but I, I guess it's a completely different game in terms of just say, for example, your posture, trying to maintain and build some endurance in your, your core and trying to keep you upright and trying to keep, um, I could imagine if someone's running for four five, six hours, 10 hours, they're start to slouch a little bit more and they can't get a lot more oxygen in because they're in that slouched position and um, a lot of muscle groups start fatiguing in that sense, completely different to a half marathon, a marathon. Um, So I wonder if there is some carryover benefit there, just purely speculative. But um, yeah, I would wonder if the research sort of what's done in the half marathon, marathon space would be completely different for uh, ultramarathoners.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to see as the ultra marathon becomes more and more popular, and how it has over the last four or five years. I mean, it's becoming extremely prof, you know, profitable <laughs> for shoe companies, um, getting people into the outdoor spaces. Um, it's becoming really popular to sponsor trail runners and and athletes of a lot of different levels, with a lot of different uh, like approaches to the sport in general. Like not all the best not all the sponsored athletes in ultra running are the fastest athletes. You know, some may have a particular um, a particular niche that they're really good at, multi-day work, right? Like, I'm the best in the world at running for six days. <laughs> I'm the best at running for 24 hours. I'm the best at a 45-minute race, and that's popular in trail running too, right? So I think that the that the breadth of the sport is so wide and so large, and that there's also so many different types of trail, um, mountain ultra trail runners in general. Um, you know, you have specialists that do flat road events. It's really hard to determine like what even classifies an athlete in our sport and, and where do you draw the line on beginning to do research? Like, do you do research in subgroups? Cause Joe gray, right? I don't know. I think he's won world championship. Four or five times, I think he's won 30 U.S. national titles, right? He's a prolifically good climber. You know, he's won the mountain running world championships. He's so different from Jim Wamsley, right? He's so different from Francois He's who's so different from Harvey Lewis, right? Courtney DeWalter and Camille Heron are even very different. They're two of the best female ultra runners of all time, but Camille's really good on non-technical flat ultras like uh, Spartathlon. And just in the same way, Courtney's so good on races like Ultra Trail Mont de Blanc and Western States, right? So how do you even begin to cross compare ultra runners and what's right for them when there are so many different disciplines on so many different surfaces? Mm. I think that's why it's a little harder to pinpoint.
0: Yeah, definitely would be. Like, if anything, we like about science is something that's repeatable and something that's like really rigid in terms of its um, parameters. And so, yeah, if you've got um, The marathon that is so structured and then you've got anything beyond that an ultra marathon is just crazy in terms of what the capabilities are and the circumstances and the terrains and those things no wonder why it's it's so hard to conduct such studies
1: sure if you think about individuals living in such different regions as well right you know what's the terrain like right out your door that's going to heavily depend upon how much strength work you need on top of just your average everyday training. Because if my, if my good friend, coach advisor, Ian Sharman, uh, is in Bend, Oregon, and he's getting through a winter with lots of snow where maybe he can't get quite as high up, and he's mainly staying flat and training in town, it's very different from his summers where he can do you know, six, seven, 8,000 feet of elevation gain over the course of 50K. In terms of his quadricep strength, et cetera, right? For mm. for long ultras where there are a lot of descents. Whereas, at least for me, like I know from a, in a controlled manner right out my door about how much work strength wise I need to do on top of the really flat training <laughs> I'm doing around my town. So it's, there are just so many different parameters uh, to calculate. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's sure. the whole problem.
0: We're saying that, like, um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on when someone does want to transition from a marathon to an ultra, uh, I guess your answer would have to be kind of vague because the what ultra they choose is completely different. But do you see any common mistakes that people make when, you know, if they're familiar with marathon training, then decide to do ultras, uh, any common mistakes that they fall into, not only with you being uh, an ultra athlete, but also with you being a coach, any, any common mistakes pop up?
1: Yeah. I've made a lot of them (laughs) because I've been one of those converts, right? And I think the biggest mistake I've personally made, and I've seen a lot of people make is you believe you have to run more. And I think it's especially specific to a runner that ran in college that maybe in high school, they specialized in the 1500, right? Or the 800 and in college, their coach had them run much more to run the 5k, 10k. Well, and then they ran the half marathon marathon after college. And they thought they had to convert <laughs> and run more about more volume. I think the same can be said for any amateur athlete that got into doing 5Ks, got into doing 10Ks, is now doing the marathon. I think there's a misconception that you need to run more volume to run well, at, to do well at ultras. What you really need to practice is probably running a similar volume to what you did when running marathons, but getting really good at running slower with the same running economy. While practicing metabolizing calories at the right rate. Because what worked for you in the marathon at certain intensities is not gonna work with you for you in ultras from the standpoint that you have to slow the intensity, but you have to up the calories because you're going to run out <laughs> if you don't, right? And the same goes for ultra athletes that did well at a 50K and said, well, I can take two gels per hour. You're gonna to need to be closer to three gels per hour for the hundred K. You're gonna to need to be closer to four gels per hour for the hundred mile distance. In my in my opinion, that's been the main thing that's been a struggle for me as someone that was running in the low 14 minute 5k range in college to running in, you know, 104 and a half. When I transitioned to the marathon, I had to learn how to eat <laughs> and and eat a lot more than just a few sips of water and or whatever sports drink they had on course off the table. Like when I ran the comrades marathon, I I ate 325 calories an hour, right? That's a, that's a very big difference from two years prior or one year prior at the Olympic trials, I got away with a gel and a half or two an hour, right? And in hundreds, I can eat four to 450 calories per hour. Now, most of the races I do, I probably am closer to 350 to 400, but that's a huge difference from someone two or three years prior, the thought I can get away with about a gel and a half or two gels per hour. Mm -hmm. So the key for me is, can you run the same cadence that you could at much faster paces? Because that's going to help you to improve your running efficiency and economy, meaning you're going to have less vertical displacement. You're going to have less wasted torsional rotation. Your gait may look a little bit more like a shuffle, but you're going to have way less wasted energy on that back kick. You know, you're used to bringing the heel all the way to the butt. You're probably not going to look like that in hundred mile races. (laughs) You're probably going to be shuffling along a little bit more in terms of like, you look like you're shuffling. But when I've run my best hundred mile races, I'm still able to run 180 to 184 steps per minute for a hundred. Right. And that takes a lot of practice. So. My point is that the efficiency and the economy need to be about the same steps per minute. Like it all comes down to cadence and economy. Waste as little energy as possible. That's also going to allow you to stabilize the stomach. It's not going to be bouncing as much. You you may not have as many gut problems if you learn to kind of just float along at this nice, easy clip with not a lot of vertical displacement and not much wasted energy like hundreds are going to feel like a recovery run to a marathoner for, for a marathoner to go out for their easiest recovery run at 130 beats a minute. That's what the first 20 miles of a hundred are going to feel like for them.
0: Yeah. Great. And I I have had some dietitians on in the past and talking about how you can almost train your guts to consume more calories while running. Um, Is it just as simple as seeing what you can tolerate and then, If tolerated well, then just try consuming a little bit more next time and all the while just trying to train your gut to see what foods are more preferable, what volumes and um, durations and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a matter of finding the company that works well for you or the multiple companies that work well for you in terms of manufactured nutrition. That's going to be the most easily accessible to you on a race course, at an event, I would recommend starting with you know, experimenting with the fuels that you have easy access to at your local running stores. Um, I've been an athlete for Goo Energy Labs for seven or eight years, and their, their fuels work really well for me as, as the base of the core components of the calories that I take in. So I find that in something like a 100-kilometer race, I can take about three of their gels per hour um, in the early stages of the event when the weather is the coolest, as the weather changes and the day heats up, I'm going to gravitate towards a less viscous calorie, like a sports drink. And as the weather cools back off, I'm going to go to a more viscous calorie, like a waffle, maybe more fruit, um, maybe back to gel. Um, you know goo also makes these great shroop waffles that I take late in hundreds because I'm a little bit tired of of gel and the sports drink that I've been consuming all day that's that's the simple part of the process is as it warms up take less viscous calories and as it cools down uh, you can usually go to more solid like solid foods um, or the cooler stages of the morning the same but you can become really exhausted with different the same type of calorie for many hours hours in a row so i like to shift the medium of the calorie throughout the day so maybe i do an hour of waffles and pure water with a little bit of fruit in the early stages of the race maybe i shift to a caffeinated sports drink to take a break from those type of foods maybe i then shift the gels and then i go back in the programming so we're, we're talking a race that would take 12 hours right for some runners that may be close to 50 60 70k For other runners, that may be closer to 160K, but regardless, if you have a 12-hour race, I would recommend changing the medium regularly throughout so you don't become exhausted of your primary fuel source. First of all, choose your primary, the medium, meaning the type of calorie gel, sports drink, waffle, chew, whatever it may be, the manufactured nutrition that sits really well with you. And make sure you're not sick of that in the later stages of the race. Because that's when it really counts for you to continue to put nutrition in is when you're in the greatest caloric deficit. So, I mean, sometimes for me, you know, I'm at mile 60 and the usual programming, it doesn't work. And I'm taking coconut water and, you know, Pringles baked potato chips. And I'm experimenting with watermelon or banana. I'm trying different things. Uh, I may sit and try a sandwich. (laughs) You know, I may say... Dude, I need like tofu wraps. I need <laughs> I need rice paper wrapped tofu with with a sauce in it that's more savory than what I've been doing. So I definitely have my hours throughout the day where three or four hours sometimes I, I do nothing but potato chip because it's the salt is what is sitting well for me there. But I'm still at 300 calories an hour. So I think that's the baseline for me personally. And I'm I'm about five foot seven you know, I'm 140, 45 pounds, something around there. When I'm at racing weight, maybe 140. When I'm not, maybe 150. But yeah, for 300 calories being like kind of the bare bones for me, that there are other individuals size-wise that would need more.
0: Yeah. Do you, are you dialed into not only how much calories you need to consume, but like fluids as well? Are you familiar with like your sweat rate or like how much sodium you're losing your sweat and how much needs to be replaced per hour and that sort of calculation
1: so i haven't done sweat tests but i do take about five branch chain amino acid capsules an hour and i've just trusted goo energy labs you know they, they make a great um, bcaa they also make an electrolyte uh, tab that i like a lot and i take all of goo's um, roctane line so their roctane line is way up in terms of branched chain amino acids in terms of sodium and some of their roctane line has extreme levels of um, caffeine as well some gels upwards of 70 milligrams and i only take three or four of those in 100 but the roctane line in itself if you take no other um, no other salt tabs or electrolyte tabs for me works well I don't need salt tabs on top of it. I take one an hour for insurance, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, the, bran- the the, level of branched chain amino acids that, uh, goo products have in them, the rock line works super well for me. Now, when it comes to other, other products, I can't really speak to that. Right. If I took a product from scratch labs or, or yeah, I'm not sure what types of nutrition you have in your region. I can't really speak to what their levels are like. I just know that goo has always worked so well for me.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, we know with, I know you say that, uh, one of the misconceptions with ultra running is like the higher volume, you need to go higher volume, but you know, you do need to at least have some mileage, like you say, around the 75 per week, that sort of stuff. Um, recovery, even recovery from races and that sort of stuff. Like it's, if you are pushing out a high training load, like you, you, mitigate injuries and you sort of bounce back race after race by enhancing recovery strategies. Do you have any particular insights of what's worked well for you or what might work well for your clients in terms of bumping up those recovery strategies?
1: Yeah. And when we're, sorry, when we're talking recovery strategies, do you mean directly following important sessions or like uh, periods of time that you're recovering from
0: Let's go right, through, so. like, if you are taxed, like you've finished your Sunday stuff and um, you're, you're feeling pretty taxed going into the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and sort of like maybe affecting you multiple weeks in a row and you sort of need to enhance your recovery strategies, would there be any particular go-tos?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think you nailed it there, right? The, the Sunday session or your longest session of the week is probably your most important session of the week for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about, right? Learning to metabolize calories, the long runs are your best opportunity to do so. It's also the best opportunity for you to get a ton of time on feet. Cause to me, the goal of the Sunday long run is to spend a lot of time on feet to get the most used to, to, to be used to the miles that are as close to my race distance as possible, (laughs) right? In, in the same accrued amount of time. Um, you're going to develop a ton of aerobic strength on Sundays. And I think hour two to hour four. Most people, I mean, are you going to be out there for more than four hours? Probably not. Hour two to hour four is really important to develop that mental toughness and to also just develop what I would call just durability, just aerobic durability to tolerate eating calories for long periods of time while you're at the end of a training week. So my, my main goal on Sunday night for any athlete I work with is to rest, relax, you know, get in, some, get in either a therapy pool, a bathtub, you know, kick your feet up, do some nice mobility work with, uh, I I really believe strongly in Phil Wharton's activated, isolated stretching routine. He does a lot of band work and rope work where you're really focusing on lengthening the muscle group and moving all the way through the total muscle range. Um, so Phil Wharton's work is fantastic when it comes to really controlled methods of repetition based stretching. Uh, so, so I think like water therapy (laughs) Kicking your feet up, resting and relaxing post long run, putting the right fuels back in, um, and a little bit of mobility work is a really good start. Now, Monday, you could be really tired. That might be the best day of the week for most people, given that you're probably beginning the work week. Um, you're getting your next week started, which can also be quite stressful to let the endocrine system relax. Maybe that means 30 to 5, 35 minutes, 40 minutes on a spin bike. Maybe it just means a nice extended walk. If you're training for the hundred mile distance specifically, I really like walking with the weight vest. Like if I need a day off, I still may go move for an hour with, with eight or nine kilos on my body to just get out the door and continue practicing, getting that durability work in. But for a lot of people, I think Monday is a great day to not do strength and to do a little bit of cross training that allows you to alleviate some of those muscle, that muscle tension, probably a great day to get body work too, if that's in your budget. So nice. that's a good start, uh, from, for the runners that I coach, uh, that, you know, for myself, for runners, I advise or work with in general, Thursday's another day. That's just really important to rest and relax because you're going into that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which tend to be really taxing days, uh, in ultra running. If you're doing a 72 hour spread back to back run where you ha- might have a medium long run on the long run, either within the 48 hour period or extended over a 72 hour period. Um, so I think that Thursdays are a really important day to to do something similar to what we just talked about there, where it's maybe you get out for a short jog, but I would recommend it be, you know, in a, in a soft grass field on a really light trail. And it would also be just a great day to, to cross train or take a day off too.
0: Yeah. Great advice. Um, any other recovery tips, like over a longer period of time, like not session by session, but say week by week.
1: Take down weeks. Uh, you know, one thing I look at uh, when I'm building trading programs for clients, I try to sense over time how often they need down weeks. I think they're some of the most important to absorb stimulus, to develop you know, aerobic strength long term, and to also let some of that quality work set set in. If we just continue to grind and grind, and we never take down weeks in volume, or down weeks in quality, we're not going to grow. <sighs> and become stronger runners in the way we want to become. So yeah. I, I believe in down weeks as often as every third for runners. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a runner can run 50 Q, 50 kilometers, 50 kilometers, but then they need a down week at 35 kilometers. It's okay. We, yeah. your body's telling us we need a down week. So I think building in that fashion where you're 80 K, 80 K, 60 K, you know, 85 K 90 K 65 K. Playing with that type of uh, volume, that volume based um, down week over time is important. I also really like at least one week a month, not having any quality sessions other than strides. So I think you can afford a little bit more flexibility in this realm when it comes to ultra running, especially in time periods where you're building volume. Why are we adding a ton of intensity while we're building volume? So. When I have a runner that has a goal in June with no super important races, meaning they don't need to qualify for the important race in June, they're already in the race. We may not touch much quality in January or February, or we may target an entirely different energy system. So I think that if you're qualified for the Western States 100, which is kind of the North American world championship when it comes to ultra running in June, last week in June every year. You don't need to do a ton of really long races in January, February, or March. Maybe you experience one really long course race, like 80K to 100K in early April, but it's not incredibly necessary for you to do long course races in the early stages of the year. So for any runner listening to this, if your importance race is in early July, late, you know, early August or mid June, don't overcook it in the winter months. Experience some other race distances, trail half marathons, 50 Ks, <laughs> you know, one of my coaching partners, Chris Brown, uh, with my coaching services, he's known for doing like four or five 50 Ks in the build up to a hundred miler and nailing it. He doesn't really race much longer usually. And I think there's something to be said about that and that we're experiencing pushing our bodies at closer to that marathon type intensity a few times and really focusing a little bit on marathon fitness. So that when we get to the final stages, which are really specific to the hundred mile distance, maybe the last eight or 10 weeks before your target race, those are the weeks that we can load up the volume a little bit more, lower the intensity a little bit more and get very specific to the race. And then, you know, depending on the runner, maybe taper that off 20 days or 14 days or even 10 days to go. Yeah. Some runners don't believe in tapering. Right. Yeah. I mean. I've I've experimented a little bit with it in recent times too. You know, not tapering until four or five days to go, and you feel fresh in a different way. So, mm. uh, I'm not a proponent of every runner needs to taper with 20 days to go. I, I'm a believer in that personally for myself, but yeah, it's it's not what I prescribe everyone.
0: So. Going back to the the down weeks, I think that's a good reminder for a lot of people because people can appreciate the adaptation response with, with if you do like say a hard workout, another hard workout, and then a rest day. And they sort of say, yep, I need to adapt. I need to build up and recover and I'll bounce back stronger. But they don't really tend to appreciate it that week by week. If I have two weeks of building up and then one down week, that is the necessary response to adapt and get stronger. A lot of, especially like marathoners that I work with, a lot of them kind of get worried that they're going to lose fitness. And so it's a good reminder that you say that, not only is it uh, okay to do it, but it might actually be necessary for you in order to get stronger and adapt without, sort of, to, to reduce your risk of an overload injury, but also getting stronger and performing better when it comes to your race of choice. So, um, well said there. And I know we're wrapping things up, and I want to make sure I cover Tasha's question, who said, "What would you in? What do you enjoy better, putting in those long miles and?" the hard efforts to get to the finish line or the feeling of crossing the finish line. Um, what, what, what do you enjoy the most?
1: I think I enjoyed the journey a lot more with the exception of the nostalgia of the finish line when you perform really well. Like when you look back to, when I personally look back to races, I'm really proud of, I do think about this, the finish line, but it's similar to like the nostalgia you have for, Certain bands you liked when you were young, right? Or if if you were a tabletop gamer or something like that, time with (laughs) friends doing that, right? Finish lines are more nostalgia to me, but what I look forward to when I'm motivated to train and I'm really excited about preparing for a race is the journey. The journey is the fun part. There's no feeling like being super motivated and training for an important race and stringing together 12 great weeks or 16 great weeks. Yeah, cool. Um, Which are fleeting. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're a little fleeting sometimes when motivation is low or you know when you're in different stages of your career as an athlete.
0: Yeah, I'm sure most people can relate to that. Um, you did mention that you are a coach. Um, where can people go to to learn more about that?
1: Yeah, so me and my coaching partners, you can find all of us at patrickreaganrunning.com backslash coaching. And that includes myself, Patrick Reagan. As well as uh, my friend Chris Brown and my friend Nicole Manette, we all work together, and uh, you know, there's a coach you know on our site for everyone. You know, different backgrounds and different needs. You know, Nicole's a mother of three, and she understands the the demands of you know working a full time job, being a pro runner, uh, and having a family. And Chris is in a different neck of the woods and specializes in events that are slightly different from the type that I specialize in so we uh we have a nice little collective of athletes or of coaches and athletes that work together
0: excellent mate. and i know you have a uh podcast as well which is awesome do you mind telling people about that sort of uh what's it about and what people would expect if they start listening
1: yeah so my podcast is called the ultra wizard ramble and i talk to individuals of all walks of life anywhere from ultra endurance athletes uh people that like yuri Hoswald, who has uh completed uh, Unbound and, and won the gravel cycling race in 2015 uh, to ultra runners like myself, to musicians and jazz bands, uh, to hip-hop artists. I, I like talking to the people of all different walks of life, and we have about 12, 11, 12 episodes at the time of this release, and we're, we're growing over time, pr- primarily focusing on ultra endurance.
0: Excellent, night. Well, you're doing an amazing job. Uh, Thanks for coming on and sharing all these tips, both from your personal experience, but also from a a, a coaching lens as well. And I think there's some really um, practical, clear guidelines for those who want to thrive in ultras and also transition into ultras as well. So I appreciate your time. Well done on your career as well as an ultra runner, as well as what you're doing moving forward and giving back and coaching and educating people through um, the podcast and that sort of stuff as well. So really appreciate the time taken and thanks for coming on and sharing.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Brody. It was really fun. I'm glad we got to chat.
0: If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20 minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list. So you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk and increase your performance emails aren't for you consider my facebook group instagram and youtube channels and remember each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough